Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Top of the morning to you. Hey, thank you guys. Thank you for your warm, thank you for your warm and delayed response. Uh, my name's Steph. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, we are in a series called Good King, Bad King. Uh, which we are looking at various kings of Israel. And in order to really do justice to today's king, you're going to need to follow me for a few minutes as I tell the story for the background context, okay? Before I do that, let me just, let's just give a warm welcome to the guys from Family Church Tottenham. Great to have you guys here. Love having you guys with us. Um, these guys are with us on a Sunday once a month, and it's great to see you and have you with us. So are you ready for a little, are you ready for a story? Okay, good. So, now, what we've got to realize is, is that Israel as one nation only had three kings, which we've looked at already. Saul, David, Solomon, and then at the very beginning of Rehoboam's reign, which that last week, the, the nation split. And it split into two. Ten tribes went north. From that point on, they're known as Israel. Two tribes in the south are known as Judah. They're closely related in so many ways. They've got the same history, but politically they become two nations. Sometimes they're at odds with each other. Sometimes they're in alliances, military and political alliances. Different ones of them are uh, married to and related to different ones of them. So it's kind of, it's not as crazy as it sounds. Think the United Kingdom. Those of you from Korea, think Korea, north and south. It's very common to have these things that happen in nations as a result of turmoil. And so here we've got two nations. And um, so the kings we're looking at from now on will either be kings of the north, Israel, or kings of the south, Judah. That's how it works. Now, today's king is a king of the south in Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. Okay, so Judah kept... Uh, the, sit, the capital city, Jerusalem, in which was the temple, Solomon's temple. Okay? The northern tribes, they set up some golden calves, normally a bad sign, um, to represent the Lord in a place called Dan. And that's where they would, that they, where they would go. That became their center of worship. Now, there's a, one of the kings of Judah called Ahaziah had a bit of a nightmare of a mum. Her name was Athaliah. Okay, now in this story, what happens is, is Ahaziah dies in battle. He's an evil king. He's done, he's done, done terrible things. He dies in, in warfare. At that point, his mum, Athaliah, decides to kill all of her son's offspring. She kills all of her son's offspring because she wants to rule. And she knows that his offspring will, will then most naturally ascend to the throne. So she kills them all by one. She doesn't get to Joash, and at this time, Joash, he's a, he's a baby. And when certain people can see what's going on in the situation, Joash is hidden. He's hidden until he's seven years old. What makes it really, really unusual is this. He's hidden in the temple until he's seven years old. So you've got Athaliah ruling in Jerusalem from the royal palace. 
Very, very close to that is Solomon's temple, the house of God, in which is hidden the king, whom she doesn't know is there, and who is also her grandson. This is the situation for about six years. This goes on. Why didn't Athaliah realize Jarahash was in the house of God? I hear you ask. Well, it could be because uh, women were only allowed in certain parts of the temple, but more likely because Athaliah had no business in the temple. She was not interested in the religion and the worship of Yahweh, so much so that some of, some, of, some of her offspring at a certain point in history, I'm not sure exactly when, broke into the house of God and took the sacred, um, sacred uh, the things dedicated to the Lord's worship, cups and the like, and used them in the worship of other gods. So really, uh, this, is a, this is a real, uh, in, in, in true English understatement, this is a pickle. Okay, if you're not from England, a pickle is a situation which is not good. Um, it's, we've taken a word which is talking about um, soaking vegetables in, in vinegar, uh, and we've used it to describe catastrophes, because that's what English people do. Okay, so if you're from a different, different culture, you might go the opposite and catastrophize. We bring it all down to a pickle, okay? But it's a bad situation. So in order to understand what's, what's going on here. Now, then what happens is at seven years of age, one of the priests called Jehoiada, he, 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 he finds his courage, we're told in the Bible, and he basically arranges a coup and they deal with Athaliah and then Joahash takes the throne aged seven. We're going to pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehu is the, current, the Israel king. So often you find that in the accounts of the kings, it, it, it helps us realize when this, we're talking about this king from Judah, at this point, this king from Israel is in place and vice versa, just so you can sort of track the thing together. In the seventh year of Jehu, the Israel king, Jehoash began to reign and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. Okay, so he reigned from age, reigned from age, four, age seven to age 47. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba, and Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. So that's not good, but for the most part, Jehoash did what was right. Jehoash said to the priests, all the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take each from his donor and let them repair the house wherever any need of repairs is discovered. But by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priests have made no repairs on the house. Therefore, King Jehoash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, why? Are you not repairing the house? Now, therefore, take no more money from your donors, but hand it over to the repair of the house, for the repair of the house. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people and that they should not repair the house. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it aside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. And the priests who guarded the threshold put, it all, put in it all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. 
And whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest came up and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who were the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord and to the masons and the stonecutters as well to buy timber and and quarried stone for making repairs on the house of the Lord and for any outlay for the repairs of the house. But there was not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or of silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. For that was given to the workmen who were repairing the house of the Lord with it. And they did not ask for an accounting from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to pay out to the workmen, for they dealt honestly. The money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Your word. Thank you for oftentimes the most unlikely uh, corners of it that we perhaps rarely read, rarely come across, the extraordinary treasures that are hidden within it. And I want to pray, Lord, as we think about this story together, Lord, that we would be instructed, that we would be encouraged, that we would be appropriately challenged, that we would be motivated, that we would be moved by your spirit. We pray, Lord, please meet with us through the word. It wouldn't be an intellectual exercise as such, Lord, but that it would be a spiritual experience. Help our hearts and our minds to really lay a hold of what is being taught here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me just explain again a few things just so you really got the hang of it. Um, the house of God, what's the idea with the house of God? It started really in earnest with Moses when he built the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. And the idea was was that God would manifest his presence there. It was a place where you could meet with God. It was a place where offerings were made to God. It was the center of worship, if you like, in the the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. That box was placed in there, inside that box. There were certain things that were uh, served as a reminder of God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's presence. And it was really just a, a picture and a powerful, um, a powerful uh, image, really, of the, the people's journey with God, his faithfulness, his goodness, his power. Then we have the temple. The temple replaced the tabernacle. And we read about the construction um, of the temple in the book of Kings earlier on. In 1 Kings, Solomon oversaw the building of that. And again, inside it, you got the Holy of Holies and this place which represented the concentrated presence of God. And it was the house of God. Okay, So you got the house of God in the tabernacle. You got the house of God in the temple. Okay, what, What's the house of God now? Right. So the Bible is clear that God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. Which shows us that the tabernacle and the temple, they're pointing towards an ultimate reality. They're powerful, they're real, they're substantial, but they're pointing towards something that is fulfilled in the coming together of Jew and Gentile under the Lordship of Christ, who the Bible says are being built together into a temple, which is God's dwelling place by His Spirit. Amen? So look around for a minute, as surprising as it might be, okay? This is the fulfillment of these things we read about in the Bible. This is the fulfillment of that. This is the house of God. Not the school, okay? the people. Which is why it doesn't matter that we don't have our own building. Because it's not the building, it's the people. The Bible describes us as living stones. 
that we are joined together. And in, in our joining together, something about our coming together, the word church, ecclesia, means assembly. It's talking about a, a called out gathering of people. The coming together of the people of God. When we gather, it's living stones being joined together. And then God indwells that with his presence. That's why we expect the gifts of the Holy Spirit when we gather. Why? Because it becomes the house of God and God comes and makes his presence known. Now, the Bible also talks about us as individual believers as temples of the Holy Spirit. So individually, a believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen. But also, we're living stones, which means when we come together, there's a whole added dynamic of what we are as the house of God and the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why we care about coming together. That's why we prioritize coming together. That's why we are devoted and committed to gathering because it's not just me and Jesus as a temple, as good as that is, it's I'm a living stone and as I join together with others, God manifests his presence in a unique way. It's glorious and I really want you to understand and see that because as we get into the details of the story, it should all become clear. Now, one other thing to talk about, Israel and money and how money worked for Israel. There's basically three ways that their money worked spiritually, if you like. There's tithes, offerings, and temple tax. So the tithes wasn't so much money. The idea really, and there were three kinds of tithe, okay? So there was the Levitical tithe. So um, 10% of your goods was given, and it went to the Levites. Why the Levites? Because they weren't given any land. They weren't given any land because they were to be basically focused on the sort of the service of the temple and all of that sort of stuff. So, so they could focus on that. They weren't given any land to work. So the other 11 tribes would take 10% of their goods and give it to, to, to the Levites. Then there's the, the feast tithe. And that's where you would kind of set aside um, certain of your kind of produce so that you could afford to go up to Jerusalem at certain key points of the year and to worship and so that you could get to, get to more gatherings because gatherings really matter. So get to the gathering, get your head lifted up, see what you're part of. So that was the, that was the feast tithe. Then there was the poor tithe. So you would, you would keep some of your stuff aside. And that was every three years, this one, I think. And that was particularly for the widows and the fatherless. There was a, a, a society built on the compassion of God for those in special need. Then there was this offering. So not so much the offerings the priests would make, but people would give free will offerings to the, to, to the purposes of God. That was part of their giving. Then there was the temple tax. Every man aged 20 or over once a year would pay half a shekel into the temple. And that really went towards the upkeep of the house of God. This story is referring to the temple tax. Okay, that's really what is going on there. Primarily, just so you understand how the thing works, so you so you get it. Now, we've got this king, Joash. He spent the first seven years of his life solely in the temp in the temple. Does he love the temple, or does he hate it? I don't know. His best memories, I guess, where. It's not a hard question, guys. He's in one place, right? It's not a trick question. Where are his best memories? Where are his worst memories? Where's all his memories? <laughs> it's just where he is for seven years. He's hidden. You know, like these films you see, which talk about situations where there's some kind of a violent regime and they're hunting people out and people are hidden in hidden rooms. And I mean, who knows? Well, I, you know, who knows? 
exactly where he was and what it was like. But I think that we can rest assured that here was a man who was familiar with the house of God. That's all he'd known. That's all he'd known. Extraordinary first seven years. Hidden, maybe there was some fear there, but I'm sure he found great comfort in those extraordinary surroundings. But guess what? He also would have noticed the gaps, the leaks, the fact that this place was not as glorious as it used to be. He noticed that. So that's the context. You've got this man on the throne. And we're not told exactly when, but at some point in his reign, he, makes, he, he says, no, we're gonna, we, we want to repair the house. We want to restore the house. We need to repair and restore. We've got a king here who is concerned for the house of God. We've got a king who's committed to the restoration and the repair of God's house. But what we have at the same time, seemingly, is a priesthood that essentially didn't care. I'm painting the picture here. You've got a king who cares about the house of God, wants to repair it, wants to restore it. You've got a priesthood who don't really care. That's really important. Because we've looked at what is the house of God today? The church. Who's the priesthood today? Us. Jesus is the high priest, but we're the priesthood. Now, you may be from a different kind of denominational background or familiar with other things where the person who leads the church is called the priest. That's not very helpful vocabulary. It's not that it's untrue, but it gives the impression that the other people in the church aren't priests. The Bible teaches that we are a royal priesthood. You can come again. Uh, which means that we all have that access to God equally. Which means that we, we, all, we all stand before God on behalf of others. Which is why our prayers are so powerful. And it's why we must beware things like, you know, trying to get the pastor to pray for you. As if somehow they've got more access to God. Be, just beware that way of thinking. What's that built on? We are a royal priesthood. There's one mediator between God and man, and it's not the pastor. It's Jesus. Okay, so you've got a priesthood here, but they don't really care about the house of God. You've got a house of God. You've got, you've got a king. Now, the king obviously represents Jesus. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. Some Christians don't love the church. I want to give you three reasons why that's crazy. Reason number one. A Christian's destiny is to become more and more like Jesus. Jesus loves the church. So you becoming more and more like Jesus means you love the church more and more. Why? Because he, lo he loves the church. He loves the church so much that when the Apostle Paul, before he was converted, was persecuting the church, what did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's how he felt it. You touch the church, you touch me. That's my bride. He loves the church. And so if you don't love the church, then you are, you are in a bit of trouble in terms of your being transformed into being, becoming more and more like Jesus. Second reason why it's crazy for a Christian not to love the church is this. It's a weird kind of self-harm. Because guess what? You're the church. You don't like you. You're the church. We are, we are, we're, we are living stones in the house of God. And so, and so to, be, to say things about the church, you're talking about yourself. That's madness. 
You are the church. So that, that doesn't make any sense. And the third thing is this, is that Jesus said, by the way you love one another, the world will know that you're truly my disciples. So if you care about the mission of God, if you care about the lost seeing and hearing a gospel that feels credible, then the unity of the church is absolutely central to that. It's vital to that. A church biting and devouring itself, as Paul says to the Galatians who are doing exactly that. They're getting competitive. They're getting divided. He's saying it's like you're biting and devouring each other. And it's a weird kind of like almost kind of grotesque kind of self-harm zombie apocalypse kind of vibe. It's just oh, it's, it's grotesque. It's, Christians do it all the time. It's madness. Absolute madness. The king loves his home. The priests, the priests need to learn that same love for his home. And here's why it is so, so important. Another reason why is this, is because the house has often got a lot of gaps. He's often got a lot of leaks. Some of Athalia's sons at some point have come in and booted the doors down and ripped up the floorboards. People damage the church very often. People speak against the church from inside and from outside. The church is under constant onslaught from the forces of the enemy. Constant onslaught from the forces of the enemy. Who is the king looking for to stand with him in this work? The priests. The priests who will rebuild. The priests who will restore. The priests who will give themselves to this great work that Jesus is about. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There's so much you can point out that's wrong about the church. But you know what? If you wanted to, you could all line up. Any of you that have been here for more than two weeks, you could line up in a queue if you wanted to. And I could go along one by one and you can all tell me what's wrong about me. And you know what? You'd have no shortage of content and most of it would be right. The question is this. At the end of it, what state am I in? Am I getting transformed and built up through that? Of course I'm not. I'm getting taken apart bit by bit. Brothers and sisters, we must never develop the posture of somehow standing on the outside, looking on the inside, critiquing the church. Because the closer you get to the center of things, particularly pastorally, the more you realize how complex this thing is. And sometimes people say, why didn't you do that for that person? And you're sitting there thinking, I know what that person's going through, and you don't. And if we'd done that, it would have totally exposed them. But you thought we've overlooked them, but you just don't understand. There's so much you can look on at and make assessments about and get wrong. And I want to urge you today, let's not have that spirit about us. Let's have that spirit that's before the king saying, yes, my Lord, what would you have us do? What would you have us do? Because the Lord loves to repair and the Lord loves to restore. Amen? The, the church requires constant renewal, constant repair, constant restoration. Um, that is the reality of it. And that happens by loads of organic one another in that goes on. And we as a church are brilliant at that. The way we look after one another is superb. The way people that hit hard spots and hard times, uh, if they allow it, the people that get around them is phenomenal. I'm so close to so much of it. 
And, um, you know, so often, you know, you just, you just see the most remarkable acts of love, service, and sacrifice that go on. It's a beautiful thing to behold. It really is. But there's another side of church that involves other things like central organization. There's nothing unspiritual or wrong about that. It's how we coordinate who we are together. It's how we keep that sense of we are an expression of the body of Christ that God has brought together. There's an organizational element to it. There's things that we are benefited from by being together in a big way. We're blessed by our wonderful musical gifts. We're blessed by a pastoral team. We're blessed by courses that are run. We're blessed by the administration of coordinated efforts so we can actually move somewhere together and actually really enjoy that sense of who we are as one thing. And that matters, and that requires investment. It requires investment, not just of money, of course, of time, of talents, and all of those things. Both of these things are good, these elements of church life, and both of them are vital. But I do want to talk about money today, and it's tricky. Three reasons why it's tricky. (laughs) Number one, in England, we don't like talking about money. When you go to other cultures, it's really interesting. They just literally talk about money, like... Like, I mean, how much money do you earn? Like, what? You literally just asked me that. I've only just met you. It's not a problem. It's literally not a problem. It's so weird, but it's true. So you've got to realize, number one, there's cultural stuff around money and being being English. (laughs) It's just a thing. Number two, um, there are some horror stories out there in terms of churches using money badly. Some of you have been at the sharp end of that. So you obviously, you're going to carry a bit of that in with you. That's totally understandable, okay? So there's just acknowledging that. And then number three, we're in difficult times. So to talk about money can come across as lacking sensitivity. It can come across as lacking understanding what to do. How do we position ourselves in this whole thing? Well, the first thing is this. It all starts with the heart, this stuff. If you can... Get God's heart for the church, as I looked at earlier. That's step one. Then it's finding a spiritual home, a congregation that you feel confident in. You feel God has called me here. This is my spiritual home. I feel confident in the leadership, in the way things are set up, so I can invest. If, you, if that's not where your heart is at in the church that you're in, then I would suggest two options. Option A probably the best first step is to talk through with someone in leadership what those problems are, what those issues are, and see if they can be genuinely resolved. If they can't be, and it's kind of, everything's been done well and in a godly way, but you just think, I just can't see it, I'm not confident here, then you need to find a spiritual home where you can give yourself. Okay? We're not a cult here, we don't lock the doors. Okay? We want people to be with us in a spirit of faith and confidence and mutual sense of running together. If there are stones in the shoe that are stopping that, please speak to us. Let's talk about it. There's nothing to hide. Yeah? Probably even buy you a coffee. Yeah? And be totally undefensive. But let's talk about it. Let's not allow things to niggle. That is a huge area which is to do with finances or what, but niggle, Christians and niggles are a nightmare. Christians don't deal with niggles. I say, ah, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. I hate that word, I hate the word fine. I've got to be honest, probably my worst word in the whole dictionary, because fine means not fine, right? 
So when anyone says I'm fine, you know, uh-oh, oh no. They said they're fine. We're in trouble here. Yeah, because fine means not fine. Fine is when you tell yourself it's fine when it's not. Okay, if there's niggles, let's sort them out. Because we're meant to run, and you can't run with a stone in your shoe. Yeah, not meant to kind of drag each other around. We're meant to run together. That's God's plan. So that's really, really important. So put your heart in, and then give yourself to where you are. And then when you are confident of the essential integrity of the thing, then your, your time, your talents, and your treasure will follow. Okay? And, then, and then when you invest those things, your heart follows. So it's a wonderful kind of cycle of enough heart to invest yourself, and then as you invest, your heart is more and more bought in. And then you find we're, we are really running together and seeing some great things happening here. But let's approach this maturely. I want to say a few things about the way we spend our money. We pay £250 an hour to be here on a Sunday. Is it worth it? <laughs> okay. I was, that was actually rhetorical, so I was really encouraged. But that's actually a rhetorical question. Some people might think, I don't know if it is. I'm not sure that it is. Thankfully, it's not every hour of the week. It's just a few. Otherwise, we'd be really skint. But we pay that, and that's, you know, that's, that's a bargain for the area, that is what it is. But that's how much we pay. Why, why do we invest in that way? Why do we do that? Why don't we all just meet in houses all the time? There's so, it's so, so important that we meet in smaller groups. It's so important. If, if you're just a Sunday kind of church goer, you're going to miss out on so much of church life. That really being known and really knowing that, right, all the one another in, so much of that happens in a smaller setting where you're really connected. It's absolutely vital part of church life. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, but also, there's something very unique that happens on a Sunday. Have you noticed that? No, none of you have. Okay, well, you were really, really positive earlier. You've all just switched on me, but that's fine. I'm going to roll with it. There's something very unique that happens on a Sunday. As we gather together, our eyes and our heads and our hearts are lifted to the bigger picture. That's huge. And I don't know how it works, but in some, in some kind of sense, that, that sense of that helps us to understand the bigger thing that God is doing and being brought into that. We get exposed to the bigger measure spiritual gifts among us, whether that's, whether that's musically, whether that's teaching and preaching, whether that's other things, leadership. You get exposed to that. It's really, really healthy. You get exposed to a wider variety of people. It's a brilliant setting for most people to make their first step, second step. Most people's first step is online. Okay? Then their second step tends to be here on a Sunday, which feels less intimidating than a small group because you can be anonymous for a while while you're getting the hang of it. A key place for people to find their way in, either to the life of the church and or about Jesus. These things really, really matter. It's a, I believe it's a really good investment of our finances. And for us to be confident and happy and say, yeah, it costs a lot of money. That's what we are. Let's just get on with it and not worry about it too much. I believe that, I don't know, but I was brought up in a church. My, my dad's not a believer. My mum is a believer. And um, I lived with my mum growing up, they're, they're divorced, I lived with my mum, so church was part of my upbringing. Some of my best memories of my childhood at church. Some of my oddest memories of my childhood at church. We was part of a house church for a while, and there was this guy called Cliff. I'll never forget Cliff. I've got time to talk about Cliff, maybe. 
It was a house church, and I'm talking dancing. I'm not talking. I'm talking. Cliff would, he would, get, he would do like the length of a front room in about three strides, bouncing around. And me and my sister would be amazed. We loved Cliff. We loved Pete and Joyce. Pete and Joyce Sanger on their, on their, on their instruments. They always go, we'd have fellowship lunches afterwards. And um, uh, one of the leaders there, Mick Harvey, he'd give me tickles. I love tickles. And about eight or nine tickles were the best. And he had lovely stones around his fish pond that I thought were precious, and he let me take one home. Little memories like that. I remember being in a Baptist church at another season of my, of my life, and I remember someone, uh, pray for the kids moment, someone stuck their hand on my head, and I'm thinking, this is weird. And then I met with God. I met with God. I remember being around some of the oddest people you could imagine growing up in church. Done me the world of good. Done me the world of good. In some ways, I feel a little bit like Jehoash. I was hidden in the house of God as a youngster. Those of us that do have children, when they come and be here on a Sunday, they're hidden in the house of God. There's a safety. There's a life. There's a joy. They're learning great things out there at the moment. They love being with us, worshipping in here. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus, age 12, found himself where? In the house of God. I had to be in my father's house. About my father's business. I had to be in about my father's business. And where is he in the house of God? When you're connected to the house of God, you get involved in the father's business. So many Christians don't like the church, but they want to be involved in the Father's business and wonder why it is not as fruitful as it could be because the Father's business happens in and through the church. Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and preach the gospel. What did they do? They went and planted churches. Why did they do that? Here's why. They'd been with Jesus for a few years. They'd learned about community surrounded by him and centered on him. And so their instinct was, we're preaching the gospel, we're making disciples. How does that happen? Well, once you preach the gospel, we build people into a community. And we disciple them, and we nurture them, and we love them, and we serve them, and we equip them, and we challenge them, so that then they can go out and be on mission for Christ, and who knows what they will go and do. That's how the New Testament worked out. That's why we love the house of God. That's why we love the church. What we use our finances for as a church is a mixture of tithes, offerings, and temple tax. So if you look at the whole shebang of Israel, Israel's spiritual money, okay, what we, do, what we use out the money that's given to support those set apart to search the church full-time or part-time, much the same as the Levitical guys. To keep our eyes out for specific needs among us, uh, of the poor among us, to, to help, whether it's outside of the church or also inside the church. Subsidizing trips to conferences, etc., and paying for gatherings together. Why? Because it's really important that we gather together as living stones. So we, whether it's on a Sunday or whether it's a leader's day or whether it's a church holiday, it's that sort of thing. It's coordinating and organizing why, so we can build people in why. Because the whole time we're going, where are the gaps? Where are the leaks? Where are the cracks? We need to throw everything at this, to plug it, to repair, to restore, to renew. Why? Because it's the house of God. That's why. And we are to give ourselves to the house of God. Not just if you're a pastor, not just if you're, but your heart is given to the house of God. Why? Because it's where God has chosen to make his dwelling presence known. And if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. He will not trade us in for a younger model. We're going to be his wife. We're a pickle, but he still loves us. 
Yeah, we're a pickle. We're a right old pickle. We always have been. Apparently, we're going to get better and better and more mature as time goes on. I hope that's happening, okay? But one way or another, we're going to get ourselves ready and he's going to marry us. He loves us. He's committed to us. He's devoted to us. He's only got one bride. He's only got one body. He's only got one house. Okay? And it's Jew and Gentile brought together through the blood of Christ together. As we do this, we are built up. We are strengthened. We are equipped in the mission of God. Amen? Amen. So let me finish by encouraging you. Encouraging you. Give yourself to giving to the house of God. We are 100% transparent and accountable where that money goes. Okay? Ask what you like. But please, you can do that. We ask you, please commit to giving. The Bible says, decide an amount in your heart. But please be consistent. That helps us. If you can, if you've got the kind of job that allows it. If not, okay, God knows. But in your spirit, in your heart, be cheerful about it. We've always said, if you're going to give grumpy, just go out, whatever, just go and do something else. Buy a Big Mac or something, it's fine. But give, give, give cheerfully, for goodness sake. Give in faith. Give in a way whereby you feel it. So it's like, you know what, Lord? This is an act of faith. It's not what's left over, it's first fruits. Give as priority. Give because it all comes from him. Give because it's all his. Give with that spirit. And next week, as we come to bless our dear Friends, working over there in the, in the ex, among the ex-Soviet nations. Let's give. They're doing it. Everything I spoke about today, that's what they're doing. That's where it's going. That's what it's for. They are trusted people. People of integrity. And they will steward the money well. Let me pray for us.